Our speaker this evening, Betty Kearse, is a retired pediatrician and geneticist. In the true spirit of those connections that the BA can ignite, I'm delighted to introduce her as tonight's speaker. In a small world turn, Betty was my neighbor when I was growing up outside of Boston, and I'm delighted to make your reacquaintance tonight after almost 40 years. <laughs> Um, her commentary, Our Family Tree Searches for Branches, appeared in the Boston Herald. Destination Jim Crow was listed in the Best American Essays 2014 and nominated for the 2015 Pushcart Prize. Mammy Warriors is included in the anthology Black Lives Have Always Mattered. And her research for the other Madisons was covered in the Washington Post. She's here tonight to talk about that book which was named one of the best 10 was named one of the 10 best history books of 2020 by Smithsonian Magazine. And she grew up steeped in the stories of her family's roots, intended to be a source of pride, but echoing with abuses of slavery, rape and incest. She embarked on a quest to make sense of that family saga, encountering issues of legacy, race and the whole truth. Tonight it's my distinct honor to welcome Betty to the virtual Athenaeum. Thank you, Bridget. It is quite an honor to speak before the patrons of the Boston Athenaeum. The title of my talk is The Other Madisons in Search of Mandy. Griot's women and Griot's men carry forth the stories of their ancestors. For thousands of years, possibly before the birth of Christ, West African griots, generations of West African griots and griots have served as human links between past and present by speaking the stories of their ancestors and the history of their people. But they are more than historians and genealogists. They are also storytellers, teachers, spokespeople, exhorters, interpreters, advisors, judges, poets, musicians, and praise singers, to name just a fraction of their many functions. They shape how each individual sees himself in the present and in the continuum of past and future. They are the social glue of society. Their words preserve the values and beliefs of entire cultures. When Africans were kidnapped and enslaved, they did not leave their tradition of oral history behind. For many African-American families like mine, this tradition is all we have that preserves the legacy our ancestors left for us. Without it, I would not have known that I am a descendant of the enslaved Corrine and her enslaver and half-brother, President James Madison. Madison did not have children with his wife, Dolly. So many scholars believe he was either impotent, infertile, or both. 
But the oral history of my family says that James Madison Jr., a founding father of our nation, was also a founding father of my African-American family. For more than 200 years, our family credo, always remember, you're a Madison. You come from African slaves and a president, has been a source of inspiration and pride. But it began as a mere tool. According to the history told by the eight generations of my family's American griots, and griots, Madison became attracted to his half-sister, Corrine. And around 1794, that attraction led to the birth of a son, my great-great-great-grandfather, Jim. Shortly after the end of the War of 1812, Dolly Madison, having learned that Jim and one of her nieces were in love, had just sold Jim. As he was being taken away, Corinne pleaded with Jim, always remember, you were a Madison. She believed the name could help them find each other someday, but they never saw each other again. Yet Jim remembered his mother's words and passed them on to his children and told them to tell their children that they are Madisons. Over the generations, as America changed, the credo changed. After my enslaved ancestors learned that they were free, the name could now become more than a tool for finding torn away loved ones. Now the name could also be a source of inspiration. Jim's son, Emmanuel, my great-great-grandfather, taught his children to be proud that their name had come from a president and to make the most of that legacy now that they had the chance. So Emmanuel changed the credo too. Always remember, you're a Madison. You come from a president. Two generations and some 40 years later, Emmanuel's grandson, John Chester, my beloved Gramps, who was born free, was proud that his father and grandfather and other enslaved ancestors had overcome enslavement. Gramps, my, uh, my family's sixth generation griot, wanted his children to know that enslaved people were remarkable individuals who possessed inner strength and a sense of hope by which they survived and many talents by which they contributed mightily to America. Gramps added two important words, African slaves. So the credo became, always remember, you're a Madison, 
you come from African slaves and a president. So for the last 100 years, the credo has reminded us that we're not just descendants of a president, we are descendants of enslaved people too. In 1990, when my mother, our seventh generation griot, turned over to me the old cardboard box of family memorabilia, I became the eighth generation family griot. When I asked her why now, she answered in her slight Texan drawl, I want to give you plenty of time to write the book. I can probably write a book about our history, I thought, but I cannot be the one to hold up the family torch of pride. For many years, I had wondered why or even whether the credo should make me proud. For me, it resounded with the abuses of slavery. So I decided that to become the kind of griot I hoped I could be, I would confront the discomforting parts of my family story. Now you've just heard about Corrine, the enslaved woman who had the relationship with James Madison Jr. and who started the credo. But let's go one generation back. The story actually started with Corrine's mother, a stolen woman called Mandy. Mandy was my family's first African ancestor in America and our first griot. Mandy told Corrine, who told Jim, who told Emmanuel, who told my great-grandfather Mac, who told my grandfather, who told my mother, who told me, who told Nicole, who tells her children, Peter and Madison, that she, Mandy, was stolen from the shore near her village in Ghana, carried across the ocean in the bowels of a wretched ship, shoved onto a small cotton field in a remote corner of a big tobacco plantation and then raped by her enslaver, James Madison Sr. Corrine was born through those forced encounters, thus making her and the future president half siblings. This cropped um, version of the whole Madison family tree that you saw earlier shows that James Madison Sr. and his wife, Nellie Conway, had a son, James Madison Jr. But James Madison Sr. had um, 
a relationship with one of his slaves, Mandy, and their daughter was Kareem. But Mandy had endured all this. Knowing her deeply, I believed, would help me to become an unflinching griot who understood and had reconciled all that the credo was saying. So in 1992, I began my journey of discovery of my ancestors, our nation, and myself. I traveled to Lagos, Portugal, where the transatlantic slave trade began, to Ghana, West Africa, where Mandy was born, to Baltimore, Maryland, where a replica of a slave ship, like the one that carried Mandy away from home, sits in a museum, to Travis and Bastrop counties in central Texas, where my great-great-grandparents and their eight sons learned they were free. And to New York City, where an 18th century African burial ground had recently been discovered. But my journey began and ended at Montpelier, James Madison's former plantation in Virginia. My travels taught me that wherever African slaves once walked, history had buried their footsteps. At the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean as slave ships sailed along, under a gaudy concession stand in Portugal, beneath a federal building near Wall Street, among the ashes of burned documents and personal papers in courthouses and private homes, and below a brick walkway and in unmarked graves at Montpelier. And their footsteps disappeared into the sand along the West Africa coast of Africa as looming ships waited to take millions of kidnapped Africans away from their homeland forever. On my first visit to Montpelier, I parked at the visitor center across the road and then took a shuttle bus through a wooded landscape. When the bus rounded a curve, the mansion, a stately coral colored jewel set before a sweep of hovering trees came into view. The moment I set foot on the soil where my ancestors had walked some 200 years earlier, I felt I belonged there with them and that they and this place would help me to become the griot I wanted to be. I started off on uh, a guided tour with a group of visitors, but I asked so many questions about slavery on the plantation that the guide referred me to Lynn Lewis, the chief archeologist. 
She was suntanned and had short blonde hair. And the knees of her blue jeans were stained with Virginia's red soil. When I told her my family's story, she said, let me show you something special. She took me to the rear of the mansion and pointed out a path of bare soil about three inches deep and a foot or so wide that ran from the rear entry of the mansion to an excavation site about 70 feet away. When we reached the site, Lynn knelt down and folded back a tarp. Beneath it lay an irregular rectangle of bricks at one end of what had been the foundation for a small building. Shoving, shoving, shoving her hands into the pockets of her Levi's and rocking back and forth on the heels, her heels, she said in her raspy voice, this was the kitchen. And that mound of bricks is what's left of the cooking hearth. And that path was worn into the earth by generations of cooks walking to and from the mansion, serving the Madisons and their multitude of guests. But what I saw was more than a hole in the ground and a heap of bricks. And the path was something extraordinary. My great, 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 great grandmother Corrine had walked this path. I stepped into the furrow and followed the length of it, a tangible and symbolic tether that had held her in bondage. My eyes teared. I had not expected to walk so literally in the footsteps of an ancestor. There were no walls and no roof at the site uh, anymore, but seeing where the kitchen had stood and recalling the stories I knew so well, I felt the tears flow. This might have been where James Madison Jr. first saw Corrine and where not far away, she had stood helpless while Dolly sent Jim away. The visit was taking its toll on me, but I said to Lynn, I really should see where my ancestors are buried. Not a good idea, she cautioned. First of all, the gravesites don't have any names or dates on them. And besides, I would not recommend you go there in those shorts and sandals. There's lots of poison ivy. Overwhelmed and tired, by being in the same place where three of my ancestors had been held in bondage, 
two of them raped and one sold, I was relieved not to go. Next time I promised, next time. Three years later, I was in Ghana, West Africa. Chapter nine of The Other Madisons, The Castle, begins with my favorite sentence in the whole book. Let me read it and a portion of what follows to you. The blue of the African sky was the most perfect color God ever made. The air was so clear and the sunlight danced so brightly off the ocean. I felt as though I was standing inside a crystal where the ocean swept over the beach. The soft golden sand became firm and copper colored. I ventured into the water and it curled over my feet, soothing away the heat of that African day. I stepped back onto the dry sand and turned to watch the water, water gather up my wet footprints, taking them deep into the ocean's depths, disappearing westward as others had gone. It was 1995, three years after my first trip to Virginia. And I had come to Ghana with a group from my church. My aim was to trace Mandy's footsteps from Africa to America. I stood on the shore, my shoulders hot under the powerful rays of the sun and looked up at Elmina Castle. Built by the Portuguese in 1482, it stretched along the shoreline and rose out of the rocks like a white crown. A series of spires and tiers of walls and balconies embellished with arches and studded with cannons. Long canoes. painted bright colors in bold designs, crowded into the small harbor, alive with voices, music, and fishing nets flopping against the boats. Beautiful, in spite of its history, Elmina, Ghana. In the central courtyard, I joined a group of visitors from distant parts of the world. I was surprised when our guide in his melodic punctuated baritone informed us that the building at the center with its square facade and square windows was a church. The first Catholic church in sub-Saharan Africa. But when the Protestant Dutch took over in 1637, they refused to worship in a Catholic church and began to use the building to buy and sell 
goods, and slaves. In the system of dark tunnels and dungeons below the church, thousands upon thousands of Africans had been chained, beaten, starved, and herded like cattle before being loaded onto ships that would carry them to enslavement in the new world. Near the church, there was a tiny cell that had been set aside for condemned slaves, most often men who had resisted their captivity. There was only a handful of us on this tour, but when the door slammed shut, closing us in utter darkness, I felt crushed among hundreds of bodies. The sound of each person's breath echoed hollow in the tight room. In the dark, our tour guide revealed what had happened here. 10 or 12 men at a time, he said almost in a whisper, were whipped, bludgeoned, and shackled, and then dragged into the cell. The door was locked, no food, no water. Every few days, armed guards would look through a small opening to check the condition of the prisoners. Still, no food, no water. The guards came back until one by one, every prisoner was dead. Our docent's soft, rhythmic voice was like a hymn of mourning wafting from the church across the plaza. On the other side of the courtyard, there had been a holding era, area for female captives. The guide pointed up to a balcony and told us of a tradition at Elmina. Because there were few European uh, prostitutes in Africa, when a white man wanted a woman, he chose one of the female captives. The Dutch governor of Elmina had first choice. He would order his soldiers to bring a group of prospects to the area of the courtyard below his balcony. The governor would step onto the balcony, survey the women below, and point to the one he wanted. With everyone looking on, the guards dunked her again and again into a cistern of water at the center of the courtyard until she was clean enough for the governor to touch. Then the guards pushed and prodded her up a narrow stairway and through a trap door that entered directly into the governor's bedroom. The trap door was then closed and locked. 
It was the 20th century, and I had come to Elmina on my own accord. But as I stood in the courtyard, I could not help but imagine myself among a score of captive African women huddled under the governor's gaze. We were all thin and weak following days of hunger and thirst, but our bodies were tall or petite, narrow-hipped or broad. Our breasts were small or full or erect or flaccid. Our faces were round or slender, our foreheads low or tall. Our cheeks were smooth or etched with tribal markings. Some of us cried, others frowned, some cowered and trembled. Some of us tried to hide our nakedness, but others knew trying to hide was useless. In my imagination, we had short cropped hair or rows of braids or intricate hair designs laced with beads. Our beads were yellow or blue or green or orange, or like Mandy's, our beads were red. In reality, I was a free American woman, but the anguish, the fear, the sense of loss, the sorrow, all lodged in my chest. When the time came to board the ship, the women who had survived were led through an interconnecting series of rooms until they reached the one that offered the only sunlight many had seen for weeks. Blinded by the light, the women entered a narrow gated egress that led to the beach. The intensely blue sky enshrouded their heads, but maybe the women glimpsed loved ones as their eyes adjusted to the brightness. They had walked through, stumbled through, crawled through, or fallen through the gate of no return. Beyond it, they could feel something familiar under their feet, African sand. But only moments later, that sensation was lost forever. The ocean wiped away their footprints. When I returned to Montpelier, Five years after my first visit, Lynn Lewis was at an excavation site, so I waited on the front portico. Though the April weather in the foothills of Virginia's Blue Ridge Mountains had been erratic, on the day of my return, the sky was blue and clear, and the sun was just beginning to warm the uh, morning air. The distant, densely forested mountains that spread out before me were blue, almost purple, 
and so wide they wrapped around the horizon. Spring here, I thought, was alluring with its promise of warmth and sense of awakening. But Montpelier had been a prison. One scores of slave cabins lay south of the mansion. And I pictured them scattered low on the hillside, leaving perilously their weathered roofs slowly giving way to the pull of the dusty earth. I pictured the sinking roofs mimicking the bowing hills, all succumbing to the forces of the land. And I pictured enslaved people, diminutive in the distance, toiling, their labor coaxing riches from the soil, making possible the Madison legacy. I went to the back of the mansion, hoping to step again into the furrow where Corrine had walked, where together she and I had followed a visible dusty path into landscape that once held black human beings hostage. The path was gone, a brick walkway now covered Corrine's footsteps, burying me, burying my physical connection to my enslaved ancestor. I felt alone and lost. Lynn found me wandering aimlessly. Sorry to keep you waiting, she said. No problem, I murmured. I did not mention Corrine's very footsteps. Silently, we headed toward the slave cemetery. Scattered pebbles on the dirt road glistened in the morning sunlight, and wide meadows, speckled with young daffodils, sloped green and bold. But as Lynn and I walked from the mansion, I grew more and more afraid I would see an isolated patch of dry dirt and clusters of poison ivy and dandelions, a place where enslaved individuals in death, as in life, had been dishonored. Bursts of wind made the trees shudder and I huddled into my jacket. I'm sure at least one of my ancestors lie buried here, I said, trying to reconnect to them. Lynn and I walked toward a low hill that rose behind a cluster of trees. A moment later, Lynn said, this is it. The field of bright blue periwinkles took me by surprise. We stepped off the dirt road and entered a small wood. Blanketed with fallen leaves and cradling the hidden remains, the ground was soft underfoot. 
It's because of these periwinkles, Lynn said, gesturing towards the perky flowers, that we know this is a burial ground. Back then, folks planted them to beautify cemeteries. And under the leaves, we found linear depressions, all oriented east to west, where the graves had sunk a little. Then last winter, there was an early thaw. The only snow left was in the depressions. It was eerie and beautiful. Lynn guided me further in. Careful we did not kick the headstones and footstones, which were crude blocks of white quartz. We stood in a kingdom of many trees, but only one of them called to me. I approached it, reverent. The trunk was broad, the thick branches pregnant with pale leaf buds. Nestled at the base was a stone, the color of raw flesh, its uneven surface shiny and smooth. The stories passed down through my mother had set me on the path that led to this very spot. I knelt down and touched the rock. My hand trembled and I envisioned my family's first griot lying beneath wrapped in white muslin, a single red bead in her palm. The gentle morning sun was warm on my back, countering the chill in the air. My shadow fell over the rock, uniting me with my family's first matriarch, my five greats, grandmother. Mandy's hands had sowed and reaped the riches of the southern soil for someone else. Mandy's womb gave birth to generations of descendants, her own legacy. And Mandy's heart gave those descendants the ability to believe in themselves so that they could become farmers, carpenters, teachers, civic leaders, entrepreneurs, lawyers, dentists, doctors, nurses, social workers, engineers, homemakers, writers, psychologists, ministers, railroad porters, musicians, artists, and much, much more. In the seven years, since receiving the box from my mother, I had struggled to understand why or even whether the credo should make me proud. But I had become a griot who will not let her footsteps be buried. And I believe that through the book I have written, I found a way to make the world Pay attention to Mandy. 
I will always remember that I'm a Madison and that I come from a president. Madison did great things for the nation I love, but it is Mandy, a stolen and enslaved woman who is my inspiration. It is Mandy who makes me proud. I looked up from the stone and said to Lynn with absolute confidence, I have found Mandy. Thank you. Thank you so much, Betty. We've got some really great questions here. What was in the box that uh, your mother handed down to you? What gets added to the box with each generation? What kind of training have you been, have you given your daughter to be an effective griot? In the box, there are lots of pictures um, going back generations. And the oldest that I have is of my great, great grandmother, Elizabeth, who was Emmanuel's wife. Um, but there's pictures that go all the way up to the present day. There are copies of birth certificates, marriage licenses, death certificates, newspaper articles, scrapbooks, um, a bits of clothing that my great aunts had made. Um, there's letters. One of my favorite items in the boxes are letters. Um, well, there's a few letters that my grandfather wrote to me when I was a baby. One of them was welcome me into the world. And another one, when I was a little bit older, was um, chiding my parents for taking me around dressed up but having bare feet and he would say uh, in the letter he said um, why don't you put shoes on that baby uh, don't you know that boys don't like girls with big feet so that he had a great sense of humor and just you know delightful letters um, and another part of that question was um, how are griots prepared? Um, and how have you how have you helped your daughter to be to kind of step into this role? Oh, just by telling telling the stories, and and she is telling the stories to her own children. So, my daughter Nicole will be the ninth griot when the time comes, and then one of her two children will be the tenth. Griot or Griot. First, uh, let me compliment Ms. Kirst on her storytelling ability, which is amazing. Um, now for my question, did, she, did you learn anything on your visits to Montpelier and Ghana that sounded contradictory to the stories you've been told by your Griot? Did I learn anything contradictory from the stories I had been told um, yes. by my mother. Mm -hmm. um, see, when I, um, 
No, not contradictory. I mean, I think I just learned more and more about how Mandy and Corrine and Jim had, had lived, um, especially in more recent visits to Montpelier because they are reconstructing the slave quarters, which includes some of the cabins and, and, and they're now working on reconstructing the kitchen. So it kind of brought into focus and just really made real, you know, those stories. In Ghana, um, well, my mother had not gone to Ghana. And so again, that trip was very important in helping me to understand a part of myself that I otherwise would not have been able to understand. If what had my ancestor really experienced, you know, as a, a stolen and enslaved person? So I think I'm just learning more and more and sort of filling out the stories. What has been the reception to your book? Have the people at James Madison's Montpelier adapted their tours or programming? Uh, because of my book? Um, I don't know that it's because of my book that they, in fact, shortly before I first came there, they were beginning to really delve into um, the way enslaved people had lived and what they had contributed to the success of the, the plantation. And so I think my book kind of adds to them to, you know, to what they're learning. And um, they have always been welcoming and very helpful in any way they, they can. And they like my book. Once you did the DNA test to prove the connection, did the Madison Family Association open their arms to you as the Jefferson descendants did? Could you repeat the first part of that question? Sure. Once you did the DNA test to prove the connection, did the Madison Family Association open their arms to you as the Jefferson descendants did? What if or what? Well, the, okay, so um, I am still working on DNA proof. It's been a bit of a struggle um, with the National Association and so now I am working with a genetic genealogist whose name is Shannon Christmas and obtaining Y chromosome DNA from my own male cousins. And um, we're going to compare them to the database in uh, family tree DNA. And I don't know whether or not the National Association will welcome me or not. It's still kind of controversial among the Jefferson uh, descendants. Some members, uh, especially the younger, are more accepting. Some of the older ones are struggling with that. How have your white Madison cousins received their black cousins? 
pretty well, actually. Uh, I have met two women who call me cousin and, you know, we're friends, we're proud of each other. Um, there are, but on the other hand, I, I guess I didn't answer completely. There are members of the um, National Society, which I, I think are not very welcoming, but they've, they've been pleasant. I mean, they haven't been nasty at all. Can you share with your listeners uh, information about the film that is also being produced based on your life and book? Oh, okay. It's um, a 37 minute documentary film uh, pro produced and directed by filmmaker Eduardo Montes Bradley, who's an award uh, winning filmmaker. He's done Julian Bond and Avita Perone and um, Rita Dove. And the film places my family story in historical context and uh, in the past, and also brings us into what's going on now nationally, especially the events of last summer. And it's It'll have its first showing on February 21st. Oh, great. Do you know why Corrine's path was bricked over? Given that they are doing a lot of archeological, archeological exploration, it seems contradictory and quite awful. Well, I was very dismayed, you know, when, when that happened. And I'm not, I'm not sure when it happened. I don't know if it, happened during a transition, Lynn Lewis retired, and then um, a new person came on. And I don't think that the, the new person um, okayed working, you know, covering that path with a, a walkway. I think that it just sort of happened as they were developing the plantation for tourists. And it was just, I think it just, I think it happened probably by accident. Does the griot tell her stories to members of her family other than her next generation griot? During your family reunions, have you presented what you saw and learned on your visits to Montpelier and to Ghana? I have, yes. I, I have shared many of the stories at family reunions. And um, I mean, I share, I do share most of the stories, uh, except some of those that might make some people uncomfortable and I'm careful with those. But yes, I, I do share them. I do want all of my family to know as much of the history as, as I think is appropriate. Are you concerned that your book may have dispensed with your family's need for an oral storyteller? I hope not. <laughs> I don't think so. I, I think that there's room for both. The oral storytelling is intimate. It's either one-on-one -on -one or it's one to a group of family members. The book 
is um, a record, a written record that will enable the story to be uh, read by many people and to place my family's story within the historical record. And the book is, is finished now, but as the generations go on to Nicole and Madison and Peter and, and beyond them, I hope that people will continue adding their own stories and giving their own take on what the history is or what the stories mean. So in the book, I describe how my view of the stories is quite different from my mother's view of the stories. And my daughter, Nicole, might have yet another view. And my grandchildren and the children beyond that might have another view. So it's always um, growing and evolving and reflecting the current griot or griot, you know, how they view the history and its place in the world. How did you determine that Mandy was from Ghana? Do you know anything about how or when her family migrated from Virginia to Texas? I know that Mandy was from Ghana from the oral history. So Mandy passed down her own story, um, you know, from to Kareem and Jim and Emmanuel and all the way down to, to, to me and Nicole. So that's how I know that it's passed down from Mandy's words. And what was the second part of the question again? Do you know how or when uh, her family migrated from Virginia to Texas? Well, okay, so what happened was that when Jim was sold, he ended up in Tennessee. And he, he, he and his family, as I said, he was married to Elizabeth, who I mentioned I had her picture. And they, in, in, um, they remained in um, Gibson County, Tennessee, until 1848. And at that time, uh, they were owned, the whole family was owned by Jephthah Billingsley. And in 1848, he moved and, and sent his enslaved family. And they were lucky to stay together. The whole family was uh, uh, transported together, together from Gibson County, Tennessee to Bastrop County, Texas, because Jephthah's son, Jesse Billingsley, had given his father, Jephthah, some land. And um, Jephthah had these slaves and just brought them along to help cultivate the land that his son had given him. And Jesse Billingsley is an interesting person. He was um, an Indian fighter and he was um, a member of the, is it called the Senate or the representatives when Texas became a state and he was the person credited with coining the battle cry, remember the Alamo. 
during the Battle of San Jacinto. So anyway, that's kind of a side. <laughs> and Jesse, um, well, not inherited. He was, my family was transferred from ownership by Jephthah Billingsley to Jesse Billingsley. And it was Jesse who owned them at the time of emancipation. There's a lot of, there's a comment. Uh, can we hope that the graveyard will be looked as, as a sacred place? I mean, which also rolls into another question. How did you, you talked about just having that gut feeling that that was your ancestor's grave, but is, did you, is that how you went off? Is that how you, just a, a gut feeling, just, or your ancestors speaking to you? How did you, what was that feeling? I mean, I guess you would call it a gut feeling. I just knew. I mean, why among all of these trees was there one I knew I should approach? And at the, at, you know, and there was this really unique piece of, Courts there that looked kind of flesh-like, you know, and I, I mean, I just knew. And as I was writing the book and doing my research, I felt closer and closer to Mandy. And I came to know what she wanted to say through me. And so when, I mean, I mean, she spoke, I mean, I didn't, I never heard voices, but I knew what she wanted me to know and what she wanted me to pass on. And that closeness just helped me knew, knew where she was buried. <laughs> 